Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is William Hallal. William Hallal is Professor Emeritus of Management, Technology and Innovation at George Washington University in Washington, D.C. He is an authority on emerging technology, strategic planning, knowledge, innovation and institutional change. He studied engineering, economics and the social sciences at Purdue and Berkeley. Previously, he was a major in the U.S. Air Force, an aerospace engineer on the Apollo program, and a Silicon Valley business manager. Bill is the founder of TechCast, a web-based system that pulls the knowledge of experts to forecast breakthroughs in technology, social trends, and wildcards to assist decision makers in managing a changing world. He also co-founded the Institute for Knowledge and Innovation as a collaborative effort between the GW School of Business and the School of Engineering. He has published widely and the Macmillan Encyclopedia of the Future ranked him amongst the world's top 100 most influential futurists. Welcome to FuturePod, Bill. Hi, Peter. Good to be here. Great to have you, Bill. So first question, Bill, for our guests is their story. So what is the Bill Halal story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community? It's, it's a very precise story. I attended graduate school at Berkeley in the infamous 60s. <laughs> students were rioting and I, I was I, I chose Berkeley because I was fascinated with the student protests I had never seen that before on American campuses and it really intrigued me and I love the Bay Area so that's why I chose Berkeley and while I was there it was a the most wonderful experience of my life I learned so much it was an eye-opener I, I attained a social conscience there I, I saw the the terrible uh, mis- injustices that take place in the way we run our world. And the main thing I learned is that we were entering what was called a post-industrial world. Hmm. If you remember Daniel Bell, the coming of post-industrial society. Yep. That really caught my attention. I could just see that so, so uh, emphatically that the computer that was starting to enter uh, use at that time was changing the world dramatically. And I have uh, maintained that interest ever since. I teach and study all kinds of uh, ordinary subjects like management and uh, knowledge management and information and that kind of thing. But my primary interest is the transition to a, uh, a new era driven by the technology revolution. And I've maintained that interest for 50 years now. Hmm. It's absolutely fascinating. I don't know of anything that equals it in terms of its impact. But the world is changing dramatically before our eyes every year, like never before. And the, the results are, I think, going to be more dramatic than we can envision. That's what my new book is about. It's about the culmination of this. And it's not going to be this dismal thing that we're living with now. I think this is uh, reaching a, a critical point. We are moving beyond knowledge to the next stage of evolution, which is by definition consciousness. Hmm. If everything beyond knowledge is consciousness. And that's where we are now. We're struggling with an era of consciousness. It's very difficult, very confusing. The main challenge here is the challenge of uh, any system that becomes mature, like a teenager. Teenagers struggle with maturity. And at some point, 
the, the pain gets so severe that they acknowledge that they have to grow up. That's where the world is. We've got to grow up, accept our responsibilities for solving these enormous challenges like climate and pandemics and inequality, all of that. I call that the global mega crisis. Yeah. It's almost like, Bill, that there's knowledge and there's moral living. There's moral ethics of how you live in a world. And and we're very – I think what we're seeing with technology is we're getting – we're extending our technical knowledge. So, you know, we're almost doing Habermas here. So, you know, we're almost doing – Yes, we can do the technical, but now we have to do the hermeneutic. We have to do the moral. We have to do the social. And that's that's the stuff that takes time. That's exactly right, Peter. That's exactly it. That's the stuff of consciousness, as I see it. Yeah, That's right. And the world has to grow up. Uh, we only have a few years to do this. I think it's going to happen, though. I see the a widespread awareness that the present global order is not sustainable. People understand that. The pandemic made it very clear. And there's a groping for the new paradigm, the new mindset. And that's what the book tries to present, a, uh, a global consciousness that is, is needed to resolve these terrible crises, or we will not survive as a civilization. It's just that simple. Yeah. So I'm going to pull you back to your story. So you got us to Berkeley. You got us to Berkeley in the swinging 60s and goodness knows what and the Grateful Dead. and Yeah. Hate Ashbury and all that kind of stuff and MacArthur Park. Um, So so then what? Well, then I I started my academic career. I got a PhD and I started my academic career. And I've been an academic now for 50 years. And I've published seven books. I give hundreds of talks. And TechCast has been a central focus of my research and consulting work. Were there people on the way that inspired you, mentored you, gave you opportunities that kind of gave you a kick up in the field? Well, uh, Leonardo da Vinci is one of my heroes. <laughs> I, I, I love the fact his breath. I mean, that man could do anything. Yeah. And that's what really captivates me. That's the way I feel. I, I'm fascinated with everything. And I, that's why I love da Vinci so much. But I was also impressed by Daniel Bell, hmm. Alvin Toffler, people like that. The journeys through organizations like Obviously, the Air Force and Apollo, I mean, were they also part of your finishing school? Oh, yeah. That's where I, I learned about the, uh, the central role of technology in driving society. It, it just made, made it so clear to me that technology is the, the primary force that transmits innovation to society at large. You know, it's, it's knowledge. Uh, technology is encapsulated knowledge, a new way to do things. Uh, for instance, today, the smartphone has changed the world. Mm. Everybody has access to all of the knowledge in the world at their fingertips. And that's one of the reasons we are in an age of consciousness now, because everybody has all the knowledge they need. There's no need for any more knowledge. Yeah. So now the interests have, have risen beyond that to consciousness. That's the next uh, area of, of interest, of development uh, in humans. It has been fascinating. I know Zia Sada at the Post Normal Institute, he has a saying that along with the rise of information, we've seen the rise of ignorance. They actually oh, they, yeah. they actually <laughs> travel together. That, you know, knowledge is not a simple, you know, we all get smarter. As we get smarter, we actually can willfully create this kind of ignorance sphere. It's almost the opposite of Teilhard de Chardin's new sphere. There's like a new sphere of knowledge. There's also this new sphere of ignorance. I mean, I think that's fascinating, isn't it? That it really at is. a time when there's so much information, why we actually wall ourselves off in small pockets of knowledge? 
Well, see, the the, uh, the sense of an age of consciousness explains that because consciousness em- embodies values and beliefs that may run counter to knowledge. Hmm. And what looks like ignorance is really the embracing of particular values and belief systems. They, they may be crazy values but or, or belief systems, but people embrace them. That, that They are more powerful than knowledge hmm. because belief systems dictate what you what you choose the knowledge you choose to 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 assimilate and to employ it could be that knowledge actually doesn't give you a reason for living whereas actually belief systems do yeah so it's a very complex thing that's happening in the age of consciousness and it's it's here now i think we are struggling with the beginnings of an age of consciousness right now and this this post-factual nonsense that's part of it hmm particular form of consciousness. It's a crazy form of consciousness, but it's a form of consciousness. Thanks, Bill. Moving to the second question, the one where I encourage the guests to explain a framework or philosophy or an approach for doing their work uh, and explain it to listeners. So what do you want to talk to? Well, I'm impressed with the power of the framework of social evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really my philosophy as a futurist and a strategist, that the world is evolving in its own logical way. And my, my new book has a nice graph in it called uh, The Life Cycle of Evolution. And it shows how civilization has moved from nomadic hunter-gatherers to agriculture, then to the industrial society, and then service and then knowledge, and then in today's stage, which is consciousness. And this is a life cycle. It's the life cycle, Hmm. like the life cycle of uh, any organism, uh, a bacteria or a a human being. It's a life cycle. And that life cycle is coming to a conclusion now with the age of consciousness. So that's my my underlying philosophical framework. And my mythology is what I call grounded theory. As an academic, I'm impressed with that approach. I scan for everything uh, that looks of interest. It's a, it's a way of life. I gather articles from the media, newspapers, the internet, uh, people I talk to, conferences, everything. And I aggregate that stuff to into clusters that make sense. And so I, I identify a new trend uh, by finding, finding a cluster that is of interest, that's novel. And that gives it a, a, a name, a title, and the content. And then uh, I, I end up with a half dozen or so of these new trends that have been identified through this method of grounded theory. And that's the, the working framework I use for my research work. Mm-hmm. When I wrote my first book, The New Capitalism, that's what I did. And I found uh, about a dozen clusters. And that, those clusters were the framework for the book. They define the central concepts of the new capitalism. I mean, I would describe social evolution as a as a kind of meta framework of understanding. Yes, because, yes. It, because of course, you know, everything from Muldoon, Toynbee, uh, Spengler. I mean, there have always been these these grand theories to explain history in the long term, and then put humans within the social part of that. Is that kind of how your social evolution works? Yes, I think that's a good point. That's right. Do you want to just talk some more about what we're currently going through in terms of your theory of uh, 
of social evolution. I mean, you know, what are the things well, that are that are breaking down, and what are the things that are fighting for uh, for birth, so to speak? Mm-hmm. Well, it's the the passing of the the old consciousness, the consciousness of the industrial age, which focused on money that just dominates modern society, the mm-hmm. presence of money, power, self-interest. Those were the, as I see it, the primary values that made the industrial era work, uh, free market capitalism and all that sort of thing. And that is no longer valid. Uh, they're still valid. I, I'm sorry, that's not accurate. But they're not sufficient. They, they have their place but they don't explain where we have to go. And so the new consciousness that is needed to solve the crisis of global maturity is what I call global consciousness. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, lots of people could define that in different ways, of course. But we, we've done some very nice studies at TechCast on this using the inputs of lots of people, like 50 or 100 people. And we boiled it down to five main principles. The first one is, Treat the earth and all life forms as sacred. The second is manage the world as a unified whole. The third is instill democracy and free enterprise throughout institutions. The fourth is embrace diversity as an asset. And the fifth is celebrate global community. It does seem as utopian to think that all those things are going to happen because they're very idealistic. But I define them as what's needed to survive. It's not a fantasy. It's, it's a vision of what's needed to get through the global mega crisis. I think this is going to happen. My logic for that is very simple. Uh, throughout this life cycle of evolu- evolution, every stage has been introduced by a revolution, a revolutionary force, the agricultural revolution, the industrial revolution, the post-industrial revolution the knowledge revolution. And now we are going to see, I think, a mental spiritual revolution, I think, within this decade. I know that's a bold statement, but I think it's coming. I I can see it bubbling up. People are looking for a new mindset, and that's going to be it, I think, something like that. The Treaty of Westphalia has been with us for a while now, and the notion of the nation state is another one of those ideas that is is very sticky. But do you see that being something that is going to, because obviously when you start talking about operating the world as a single organism community, then clearly uh, nationalism doesn't actually lead to that necessarily, does it? No, I think it does, but it, it's, it has to be modified a bit. Nations and corporations retain their independence, their identities, but they have to learn to collaborate to solve common problems in their own self-interest. That's all. It's very different. It's, it's very simple. So it's more a meta-arching architecture yeah, rather than yeah. replacing well, we, it. We need, we need a world where people collaborate so that we can run a, a, a civilized world. Hmm. That's all. And in our common self-interest. Yep. It's, it's not a great leap. And, and we, we do that now. But I don't think there's an appreciation for the power of collaboration. Mm-hmm. We've been so immersed in, in uh, capitalist ideology for you know hundreds of years that we're obsessed with competition and self-interest. And that is, I think, the big problem. You, you can't run a civilized world based on those values. The new values are going to require cooperation and collaboration, that kind of thing. And some people think, even go beyond and say that the, the foundation for, for cooperation is love, the not romantic love, hmm. but the love that we experience when we recognize the legitimacy 
of other people, when we honor the worth of others and we commit ourselves to a, a, a trusting relationship with them, that I think is going to be central to making a world that works. Yeah. So that's love in that sense, I think is a foundation for all of this. Chilean biologist Humberto Maturana, when he and Francisco Varela yeah. uh, wrote The Tree of Life, talked about that love is the only emotion that allows something to be as it wishes to be. Yeah, exactly. And, and all religions, I think, are all founded on the principle of love. I mean, I'm a Catholic, and the Catholics are just, you know, all over themselves with the love of Christ. You know, that's the, their, their, their abiding uh, central message. Yeah, uh, love, and they're right. Love is is, is a, the most powerful force in the universe. I think. Yeah. I don't. I don't. Not sure what there is in the form of a god. I don't know what to believe about God, but I do sense that there is something in the universe that makes it that drives it. I sense it when I'm in my garden. All those plants yes. are being energized by something, and I think it's got love and wisdom. It's something like that. That, that, I think, is an operating definition of spirituality. Yeah, I think, again, I'm a gardener too. There, things, things want to grow, whether you want them to or you don't. Exactly. And invariably, what wants to grow is not what you want. Yeah, exactly. It's an unstoppable force. It's a great, powerful force. Exactly. Thanks, Bill. Third question, we've actually touched on this, but we might just go a little bit deeper into some of that. I was I asked the guests to put down their expert knowledge, you know, Bill Halal, you know, TechCast, uh, Emeritus Professor of Innovation and Knowledge, and just simply talk about Bill Halal, human being on the on the planet. But of the things that are happening around you and the things that you are most sensitive to, I mean, you know, what are the things that really are getting your attention? As I say, you've already started to lay them out, but what are the ones particularly that, that you give careful attention to now, right as, it, as it's happening now, both from a point of view of caring and nurturing and supporting and also some things that you actually want to stop or prevent or that? Well, yeah, that's a good point. From a personal point of view, I'm appalled at the way we run our affairs. I think we... We're, we're really barbarians in the way we run our organizations. Uh, it, the world is, is a mess because we, we don't see a way to run things better. And that, that, that bothers me personally. Uh, I, I see chaos all around me, conflict where it's not necessary, confusion, ignorance. And uh, my personal affairs are in great shape. Uh, I've got a wonderful home. A family that I love. We we love each other. We've created uh, my home is a, is a little paradise, which convinces me that there's no reason we can't really create a world that is far more loving and prosperous than we have now. I just see confusion and ignorance all around me. My uh, main motivation is to try and dispel that. As a teacher, professor, uh, and a scholar. I'm basically a teacher, and my uh, main motivations are to try and alleviate that darkness, to show the way towards a world that works, a world that is uh, beneficent, that supports us all, and we can we can prosper together. I, I think it's entirely possible. I think that's where we're going. Hmm. In 20 or 30 years, I think we will be there. I'm pretty convinced of it. And I, I just uh, I do my best to try and show people that. It is interesting how... Um, I mean, like you, I think 
the better side of people's natures is to is to take care of themselves and the people close to them and one another. It's curious that we, as you say, we have this behaviour tend to turn on people. Now, there's clearly some institutions that profit from that behaviour. And I'm thinking, for example, of media and so forth. But why do they happen? As I say, in a world with so much knowledge, and, so, and Daniel Bell was writing his book all those years ago, why do we still fall into the thrall of those kinds of behaviours? Well, the hopeful thing is the way the corporation, major corporations, are on the, the verge of a revolutionary change. The American Roundtable, Business Roundtable, and you probably know this, a year or so ago, they issued a, an announcement that shareholders were no longer the primary or the only constituency to be served. Mm. And all stakeholders, and employees, customers, the public, and so forth, should be e- treated equally with shareholders. That is revolutionary. They're, we're just beginning to do that now. The interest in it, in it is widespread. I see it everywhere. It's being called uh, ESG, Environmental, Social, and Governance, but it's really much broader than that. It really amounts to turning the corporation into a collaborative enterprise, an enterprise where the stakeholders work together and they all benefit because of their, they, they create value for everybody. So you not only improve the, the well-being of employees and customers, but the stake, the shareholders even make more money. So there's, there's no conflict here. There's no need for conflict. And this is just beginning. I think it could lead to the turning the corporation into a quasi-democratic system. It is governed for the interests of all of its stakeholders, which means society at large. And it's happening because business executives know that if they don't, we're not going to make it. They see the social problems are just so enormous and that governments can't deal with them alone. And so they know they have to do it. So they're stepping into the breach. So I'm I'm very hopeful by that. I, I think that's truly a revolutionary change. Yeah, I agree. The part of me, the Machiavellian part of me, Bill, of course, always goes back to the notion that there are those <laughs> that there are those who profit from the current arrangement and are opposed to change. Yes, of um, course. Of course. Know, and so there is going to be a contest. Well, the motivation is to change the corporation is so widespread that I don't see much resistance. That's what's amazing. Mm. I mean, everybody seems to be on board. Uh, I see it everywhere. But you're right. There are going to be uh, there's going to be resistance, and we'll have to see what happens. Maybe it can't be done. I don't know. It's it's. But I think in principle, it's entirely feasible. But but it has to be as more than than doing good. That that's the the logic that prevailed over the last fifty years or so, and that is not going to cut it, because the corporation is inherently a competitive institution, it has to survive in a marketplace, and so it has to create value. And it does that, it will do that under this new concept by collaborating with stakeholders so that they solve tough strategic problems and create value. And that's going to be essential to make this work. Yeah, I think when externalities come inside and when corporations have to manage their true cost. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And once communities realize that, these costs have to be managed by someone and that a person who chooses not to manage it means they manage it. Now that's well stated, Peter. That, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. 
The next question is the communication question. When people start out in the field of wanting to work in these places, Bill, it's often hard to explain what it is we do. So how do you explain what you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do? Oh, yeah, that's tough. Well, the simple answer I give them is I study the technology revolution. Yep. That's my, my short answer. But beyond that, I get into social evolution. I think that's the way I, I deal with it. And that, that seems to satisfy people. They see it in historic terms. I think using technology is interesting because it's hard to find a hook with people as to what they're interested in, but technology and change is so all-encompassing and everybody knows about it. It almost is an immediate entree to the conversation, isn't it? Exactly. This is the most powerful force in the world today, the technology revolution. Nothing equals it. I mean, it's changing the world every day. It's just amazing. It's really a privilege to be alive at this point in history to see this happen, I think. Probably also, I think, exciting to watch how it becomes a generational change process. And it doesn't mean that people like myself can't catch up to the next generation, but it's fascinating watching younger people who are born into the technology, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's the generation that's going to do this, I think. I see it in the students. They are a different breed of youngster. They um, do not see racial problems at all. They do not see gender problems. They, they, in fact, they glorify differences. Yeah. If a person is is different in some way, they like it. Mm. They inherently understand that uh, we need to create a sustainable world, solve environmental problems. They they understand all this stuff intuitively, and I think they're going to have to make these big changes. And maybe we can help them or not get in the way. Yeah. Well, uh, some of us, some of us adults understand. Uh, together with the young generation, I think it'll happen. I feel very confident. I, th- I think we're going to be surprised in, uh, in in not too many years, you know, maybe a decade or so, to see that this dismal state of the world today could t- turn around. You know, all this autocracy and yeah. resistance to climate change and all that nonsense. I think that's going to it's going to melt away and you're going to see the resurgence of interest in the positive aspects of, of humanity, the, the need to collaborate and solve these enormous problems, that kind of thing. So let's close by talking about the book, Beyond Knowledge, How Technology is Driving an Age of Consciousness. And the listeners can't see it, but I do recommend they have a look at it, that the cover has got a goddess giving (laughs) visions, giving humans a visions of global consciousness. That's right. That's exactly it. Thank you. Do you want to talk to the listeners about the book? Well, the book is really pretty much uh, what we've been talking about. It uh, makes this thesis that the knowledge age is passing and that consciousness, age of consciousness is, is upon us. And it starts from there and it lays out the implications of all that. It uh, embraces the, uh, the reality of human spirit uh, as something that's real. It's something that we often don't accept in modern society, the reality of, of spirit, of spirituality. But I think it's an absolutely real thing. It's, it's empirically there. Uh, I don't talk about supernatural gods. That's something else. But human spirit, human spirit is the basis of spirituality. That's a real thing. We all we all live in a, 
a, a different changing state of human consciousness, of human spirit. And so I think we have to recognize that we are spiritual beings, hmm. fundamentally, which is very hard for most people, modern people to accept, but they know it's true. Yeah. I think they know it's true. It was part of the Renaissance and part yes, of that's right. you know, even moving that we, to some extent, we had to break out of a mythological straitjacket. Exactly. And so, yeah. And so... The notion of cold cognition and rationality was to some extent helped us get out of one prison, but we got into another one. That's exactly right. And that's been the case for, well, the, since the Industrial Revolution for the last hundred years or so. That's right. We've been locked into this mindset of uh, money, power, and self interest. Those, I think, are the governing values. And, in most society, that's why we're in trouble. I think that those mm. that those values were useful during an industrial age, mm. when the need was to build capital, you know, factories and roads and machines, and that made sense. But it no longer makes sense when the the factors of production are no longer capital; they're political support, knowledge, innovation, ideas, that all of that sort of thing. The things that are in the that I call uh, a global consciousness. Those those are the operating forces today, I think. And th th if we recognize those, then I think we can build the kind of world that will su be sustainable, that will get through the crisis of maturity. Good words to end on, Bill. Look, on behalf of the FuturePod community, thanks for taking some time out to have a chat. It's been wonderful talking to you, Peter, especially because you are such a knowledgeable and competent interviewer. This has been a very well done interview, and I'm grateful to you. Thanks, Bill. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.